0: Hello and welcome to Learning to Fly, the Science for the Anthropocene podcast, brought to you from the Lancaster Environment Centre of Lancaster University. I'm David Tyfield and I'm the Professor of Sustainable Transitions and Political Economy at LEC. And thank you for joining us. Today we're going to be talking about an extremely important subject, which is soils and food systems, and associated with that, issues of myth-busting. And to discuss this, we're joined by someone who could hardly be bettered to discuss these issues, uh, and uh, a colleague and friend of mine, Jess Davis. Jess is Professor of Sustainability at LEC and uh, Director of the Centre for Global Eco-Innovation. She is an engineer and environmental scientist interested in the role of land and soils in creating sustainable food, climate and water futures, And she worked across a range of settings, uh, forests, peatlands, arable, grazed grasslands to urban landscapes, and with a wide range of methods from quantitative process-based modelling through geospatial analysis to qualitative expert elicitation and citizens juries. As an engineer, her work is also focused on solutions, which is extremely important uh, for us on science for the Anthropocene. And this includes a Uh, currently as Principal Investigator for the Quench Network, uh, which is a project aiming to further our understanding of the links between the quality of urban environment, uh, nature connectedness, health, and managing of these spaces for ecosystem and human health benefits. She's also an expert in environmental modelling, having collaboratively developed uh, several uh, important models, hydrological and plant soil, uh, and these aim to help us understand and predict how terrestrial ecosystems, carbon stores, and nutrient cycles are responding to climate change, to land use change, and multiple other human factors. Crucially, also, again, for Science for the Anthropocene, this work also explores how these models can help us make sustainable decisions. In short, Jess is a passionate advocate of the value of soils and the importance of food and agriculture for a sustainable future. Delighted to be talking with you, Jess. Welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks, David. Yeah, really nice to be speaking with you as well.
0: Great. So you may know that we start with an opening question, a standardised question uh, to get the ball rolling and in at the Mm -hmm. deep end. Okay. so uh, is your science, which I'm going to roughly call soul science or food system science, um, is your science fit for purpose in the 21st century?
1: I, is any science fit for purpose in the 21st century? I think is a, a question you could ask. I think it's something we need to be reflecting on all the time. I think it's getting better. We're getting more engaged with people in practice, with different ways of managing and, and different ways of understanding soils. Um, but we we could get better. And, and one of my frustrations is that we need to get um, more agile in how we approach problems and work together to address the urgent issues that are upon us in this century.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's turn from that sober assessment of where we are, right, to to something more personal. Um, how did you find yourself interested? How how did you uh, uh, get into these questions of soil and, and food systems?
1: Yeah, how did I get into soil? I, it's, a, it's a question... Um I can ask myself I think I never thought I'd be so interested in soils. Um if you'd asked me you know when I was starting out on my PhD I'd have no idea at all. So I, my background is um is I'm a control system engineer. So I I went into that field into into my doctorate with a uh, a passion to address problems in practice with maths and physics, which were kind of my, my tools that I had and uh, wanted to do things that that had relevance for practice. So I was, you know, deep into engineering and um, control system engineering was a great subject to study as it gives you sort of a, a systems perspective of um, processes, interacting, how systems change over time and how we can try to Intervene to um, get to some outcomes that are the beneficial with systems, and the kind of systems I was working on at that point were aircraft systems and train systems, and uh, I, I really enjoyed that systems aspect of it. But I just I just found myself not as interested in trains and as and in aircraft as uh, some of my colleagues around me. Um, but I had brilliant supervisors who sort of knew that. Um, that were quite open to other fields and uh, saw the, the links between what we were doing with other fields. And, and it just felt very possible for me to go away from that uh, doctorate and go and explore other fields with the same kind of, of tools and ideas in mind. And, and that's what I did. I, I made a, a move after my PhD into environmental sciences, uh, starting out with, with water but then quickly became really interested in soils as something that is a really complex system to be understood, lots of interacting parts, emergence, and something that's really important for us to try and understand and manage for our future on the earth.
0: That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, we've known each other for several years and I suppose I didn't really know oh, right. that, that background. <laughs> um, I'm interested in to what extent this sort of hard, hard science, right? Maths, physics, uh, systems approach. How did that actually sort of bring soils to life for you?
1: It's something that's still in my tool set today, but is just part of how I understand, how I seek to understand uh, these systems and and how they change over time and how we can manage them better. And I've got a much wider appreciation now for um, other methods and other Aspects that we need to consider that go beyond what's mathematically and you know can be characterized with with maths and, and physics. So it, the but the, you know where where I've brought that into um, my current research. So you mentioned that I'm a, a model developer. So I develop computer models that help us understand how uh, soils have changed over time. So I, I've used those models to understand how soils have changed over the Anthropocene. Uh, as a consequence of how we've uh, changed the vegetation on the land, how we've done agriculture, how we've added lots of nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus, into these these soils, and and changed the the species there, how we've tilled them how all those things interact, to um, culminate in the in the current state of soils, and so it's kind of trying to we've used those models to try and understand where we are today and how they may change into the future when we consider also uh, climate change as well as different ways we might want to manage our landscapes in order to try and meet different goals. How, how, you know, how, how's that going to pan out? We need some, I think models are a useful tool for helping us sort of think through that problem. They're not a perfect tool. Models are always flawed, but they're a way of trying to keep our assumptions honest that we put those assumptions into uh, maths and equations and we we let them play out. And that allows us to explore how these situations may play out in practice. Fantastic,
0: yeah. and I mean, really speaking very strongly to the idea of the science for the Anthropocene, you know, taking all these tools and neither just relying on them nor disparaging them. You know, they are really important tools in our arsenal that we should be using um to to grapple with complex system challenges that we haven't had to up to date and that is exemplary <laughs> fantastic <Well. laughs> um let let's usually we would then go on at this point to talk about well what is the what is the problem right mm. But but we're deliberately not going to do that today because we'll get to that shortly um, when we're talking about some of your research specifically. But let's get our hands dirty in any case, right? And and just to orientate the discussion a little bit about soil, can we have some pedology 101? I mean, I've got some very basic questions, right? When I think of soil, I think of topsoil. And yet those two words do not necessarily mean the same thing. So... Um, what, what is soil? What, what are you studying as a soil scientist and how is it different to topsoil? What, what, and you know, what role does soil as a whole play in the cycles of enab- enabling life on Earth?
1: Yeah, okay. So soil is uh, a mixture of um, mineral matter that's weathered from rocks, organic matter, so decaying uh, organisms and plant material, and living organisms um, within the soil it's a living ecosystem and a combination of gases and water. So it's it's this kind of emergent environment through an interaction between uh, geology, atmosphere, water and biology. And so it's this this constructed uh, layer on the earth that that supports life in, in many forms. And that that emergence of this sort of structure of this ecosystem is is what really fascinates me on one level as a mm. as a systems scientist and and yeah why I've become so hooked into it I think it's a, you know it's a really fascinating unknown world to some extent that we understand so little about how this world underneath our feet works and, and we're learning a lot in in ecology now. Um, about how those systems uh, function. So you mentioned topsoil and soil. What's the difference? So topsoil is is the top <laughs> <laughs> of the soil. So um, you know, topsoils might be, have more organic matter in them. So they're darker, and so that organic matter is the is the decaying um, plant material and organisms in that top layer that organic matter is, is really important um, to the role that soils play um, within our um, earth system and, and within biology, that organic matter, um, it contains nutrients. So we have this material that's breaking down and releasing nutrients and making it available to life. It's uh, spongy, so it absorbs water, it, met- it retains water, and there's water available there. For organisms, um, and it stores carbon, so it's it's a, a lot of, of that organic matter is carbon. So top soils they tend to contain more of this organic matter, so they're important in, in that respect, um, and they're the you know they're the top where most of the roots and um, life is interacting. Um, but we're learning much more that it's not just the top soils that are important; it's the subsoils as well. And um, there's been a big push to understanding further further down, taking um, longer cores of of soils and, and measuring um, and observing more down the soil profile. And there's a, there's awful you know once we consider the whole depth of the soil, that's really important in terms of uh, carbon and, and the role it plays within the, the earth cycles the um, uh, earth system and and there's life down there as well. yeah so the, the topsoil is often what we're managing and it's most uh, affected by what we do as humans and it's most most closely interlinked with um, lots of, of creatures existence but the, the subsoil is is also important. And just to put into like into perspective, you know, I mentioned carbon cycles and soils. Um, that that soils are, they make up the the largest component of organic carbon within the Earth system. So there's more uh, organic carbon stored in soils than all the rainforests, all the plant matter, animals, atmosphere combined. That it is a massive uh, store of carbon, and it's it's not just a store; it's dynamic. It's constantly being released into the atmosphere, uh, brought down into the soil. um, And so it's been exchanged And the topsoil is where all that happens. So understanding that in terms of climate change is is really important.
0: Fascinating. I mean, what what I have in my mind, uh, thinking allegorically, is that the soil is, as it were, almost a magical layer uh, on our planet, which turns a planet of inert rock uh, into life. Yeah. And the, the, the higher you go up, uh, the more you the, the soil becomes this... It, it's almost as if in, the inert material divides into life and death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the topsoil is this extraordinary mix of, of decaying matter and, and living yeah. uh, creatures and the basis of, of all the life that we see.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, soil is life and death right. happening uh, all the time, and that that you know, you mentioned it's supporting life, but it's created by life. It's yes. a it's a, this mag- as you say, magical layer of the yeah. earth that's been created by life yeah. as well, and so it's a it's a symbiotic kind of relationship yeah. um, between the earth and its biology, and, and
0: so precious, but also sort of mind blowing.
1: Yeah, mind yeah. blowing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it is, and yeah, and uh, yeah. I feel ashamed. I didn't know anything about it until.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, m- my <laughs> sort of interaction with soil yeah. to date is sort of you know, tinkering around the garden, you yeah. know, and, and enjoying being muddy as a kid, you know. So, so yeah. yeah, wonderful. Okay, so let's let's turn to your work specifically, and you've done a number of fascinating and groundbreaking projects on issues regarding soil and food systems. But your work seems to be marked by a particular strength, which is its interdisciplinarity. That we can hear that in your own bio, fascinatingly. Um, but also this system, uh, systemic whole system perspective, uh, and also this positive grappling, this this sort of solution focused approach of working with contemporary challenges. And I think this brings with it sort of a twofold focus. One is uh, gathering evidence that has the potential to inform positive practical interventions, that's very clear, but also the flip side of this, which is removing knowledge blockages to action. And those blockages might be negative, in other words, they might be absences in the forms of knowledge gaps, or they might be positive blockages in the form of mistaken common beliefs and memes. And uh, this latter approach uh, leads to some of the stuff which we'll talk about shortly in terms of myth busting, which I think, is a very interesting and important topic for Science for the Anthropocene, and uh, uh, I want to register my gratitude for your suggesting this <laughs> as well, because it's a great idea. So we're going to discuss uh, these key themes and dimensions of a science for the Anthropocene in a minute, but before we get there, we also need to look at some of the examples um, of how you've been doing this, and this gives us an opportunity to discuss some of your um, key substantive findings, and I think those will also be of great interest themselves to to listeners so let's focus first and maybe quite briefly on uh, what you've found out uh, in your own work about soil its challenges some of the responses and also in particular some of the work you've done great work about urban agriculture and then we can turn to this issue about myth busting and science uh, society relations Uh, first then Um, What you found out, including uh, against some of the high-profile sensationalist claims we have out there, and surely the number one out there, that people are starting to get interested in soil because they've been scared into it, which is, uh, as we'll see, wrong, but not totally wrong. Um, We have these headlines now in the press that there may only be 100 or 60 or even just 30 harvests left on, on Earth. Um, which takes one from being terrified for one's children and grandchildren to being terrified for oneself. So tell us uh, about your groundbreaking work that scientifically quantifies the the current rate of, uh, or rates, uh, crucially, of soil erosion.
1: Yeah, so this is is work that um, was carried out by a a PhD student working with me, Dan Evans, and uh, with my colleague John Quinton as well that we were a bit sort of curious and frustrated about this quote that keeps going around and is perhaps going around a little less now, which is good, um, around how many harvests left in the soil. Is it 100, 60, 30? And we were trying to find what the evidence base for this was and trying to track back to, you know, what what's the study that where this has come from? And um, it, it's been in... FAO speeches and, and that's where it tends to get quoted, cited, is is this FAO speech. And the only thing before that we could find was um a media um piece like a press release from a, a study that was completely unconnected to this question. And it was kind of a kind of a, a misquote, I think. So this this quote about there being a hundred harvests left came from a completely unrelated study where there was a misquote in, in a press release, and we found that really frustrated um, and thought, well, you know, how would we, if we wanted a number on how many harvests left, how would we go about even trying to make that number? So that, that was what Dan tried to approach. And and so what we did, we tried to bring together all the, the studies out there of, of soil erosion. So we amalgamated a big database of soil erosion studies and um, and balance them against soil formation. So um, particularly, you know, this, how, how many harvests left was, was talking about how much, you know, for where, when will there be soil, uh, enough soil to uh, support a harvest? There's other reasons why soils might not support a harvest, um, but this is, you know, sort of the fundamental one. If it's not there, then it, it can't support a harvest. So we were trying to um, quantify these these soil erosion rates Um, So we we created this global database and um, did this analysis. So it doesn't tell us about soil erosion rates across the whole earth. And what, you know, they might be, that's very difficult to quantify. There are some some people who try to quantify those. But but this is um, our best estimate based on um, empirical science.
0: I should just add, though, you say it's not the whole Earth, but there are lots and lots of places on, on your database, right? And yeah. it's, it's spread across the, the planet. It
1: is spread across the planet, yeah. yeah there, are, there are inevitably more data points in the USA, mm. for example, where there's been a lot of studies and... Um, you know, perhaps out of the dust bowl came an appreciation for soil management and more studies of of soil. And there's a there's a lot more soil erosion studies mm-hmm. in the U.S. than than many other countries. But yeah, that it's yeah, I think there might have been eighty countries in in the study. There's a lot of countries, but not it's not evenly. um You know, this is a, a database that's brought together about the studies that exist. So it's not systematically. uh, created in order to sample all the different soil types in all their different um, situations and under all the different types of management they could be under. Yeah, but it's a bringing together of of the data that we do have and we try to bring together the characteristics about how that soil was managed as well, whether it was soil that was kept bare, free of vegetation, whether it was um, conventionally managed, tilled, um, or whether it was under some sort of form of conservation management as well. So um, the,
0: the listeners might be on tenterhooks at this point. Let's let's cut to the punchline a little bit, right? Um, how are we going to be without food in thirty years or not? What, what's the where I, do we get to?
1: Yeah, you know, unsurprisingly, we don't find that <laughs> that all the soils that that are studied have less than thirty years left. So the, the completely unsexy number the numbers that come out of this study, and I think that's the point as well, is to show that there's not going to be a, a, a sexy number that comes out of, of the science and, and the, our understanding of the data here. But we, but we found that for conventionally uh, managed soils in our database, 16% of them had lifespans that were less than 100 years from the time they were managed. So that topsoil... That's really important. That topsoil layer would be lost within a hundred years. Sixteen percent doesn't sound that exciting or that uh, worrisome, but to me, that that that's a number that's too big. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to lose sixteen percent of our soil resource. Or to think that there is that many that are, that are um, being lost at that rate is is alarming to me. Yes. And the,
0: it's alarming, exactly, alarming. rather than alarmist. Yes, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah, and, you know, but the rest had much longer um, lifespans. The median was around 500 years. Um, but if we think about that, that's really short in Earth's lifespan as well. So that, you know, whilst 500 years is, you know, quite a few generations for us, it's it is a really big disturbance on the planet. That's that's being created. Some of the soils were thickening, and more of the soils were thickening in uh, conservation management than they were under conventional management. Um, so, so yeah, there were soils there as well that were that were um, accumulating uh, rather than uh, decreasing as well.
0: So tell us about some of those those conservation methods that you mentioned for specifically don't you in in the paper.
1: Yeah, so we um looked at a number of of different conservation methods that were that present in the data set. So we had things like land use change so where um a soil was taken out of agricultural management and into um, perhaps forested forested um, management or grassland sometimes those can be productive in terms of food as well. so it's not necessarily completely out of food production um, but into a different type of land use. We looked at cover cropping where um, you insert a, another uh, crop within the cycle to try and um, in part manage the soil cover. So establishing a, a cover crop in between harvests um, of your of your main crop, that helps protect the soil from rainfall, from, from wind, from soil being uh, lost as, it, as its vegetative cover has been lost. Um, it, can also, it can also help with things like adding, you know, sometimes cover crops are, are nitrogen fixes so they yeah. can add nutrients to the soil as well. And we looked at conservation tillage. So that might mean um, tilling the soil uh, less, tilling it to a shallower depth or no till. And contouring, so where you, you um, cultivate with the contour of the land rather than against it. So rather than going up and down a slope with a tractor, you go along the slope and plant along the slope, and that helps break uh, the water's flow across slopes and, and prevent soil moving. Um, but it's just a, a bit harder to, to implement in practice than it's just easier to go up and down the slope with the machine, basically. Right, yeah, and so so those different methods they're not high they're not high tech or particularly uh, you know they're well well established practices, um, but the the database showed that they really do make a difference, and that you know there were far more soils that were accumulating, um, so that their formation rates were um, higher than their erosion rates. Um, which is good news, and um, far fewer of them with these very short, less than a hundred year lifespans. Um, yeah, so it was around seven percent that had lifespans of less than a hundred years, as opposed to sixteen percent under conventional management.
0: So seven percent. I mean, the sixteen percent is, as we were saying, you know, it's it's alarming. It's still a wake up call. It's not, um, uh, and everything's okay. Go back to sleep, but. It's also don't panic. On the other hand, seven um, percent even for conservation is still quite high. Yeah. So, can we get that down to zero? Is that a conceit I mean, maybe not zero, but maybe 0.1. one. You know, um, what's standing in the way of uh, even if conservation methods still leave seven percent mm. uh, as having very very short lifetimes? Yeah.
1: So it's seven percent of those of those studies that are under conservation management were still eroding that. At quite a high rate it might suggest that those places are not good places for cultivation, um, and for the type of practices that were being um, used within that cultivation. So it's the it's the right practice in the right place that's important as well. And you know maybe those places they're, they're not going to be able to sustain that type of agricultural management for for that long, and that that needs to be accepted. Basically, but it's very difficult to to get to zero when we are intervening in the soil and in the plant cover of the soil. If we want to extract uh, food, mm. if we, you know, we want food. We're going to have to take away something. Um, we should replenish. You know, we can replenish the organic matter, and there's a lot of um, interest in how we manage organic matter and um, Manage that for sustainable uh, agriculture, as as well as for for climate change. Um, but you know, if we if we remove the cover at any point, then we do present a risk to some soil being lost um, from that area.
0: This leads nicely, I think, to to the second aspect, which is, as you were saying, agriculture is, you know, it needs to take stuff. So, uh, how do we grow food, given that we need to eat uh, and one aspect of a solution you've been exploring is urban agriculture. Uh, And in particular, two key knowledge gaps uh, that your work has been looking at is what is the comparative yield of urban agriculture against conventional field-based agriculture? Uh, And secondly, what is the potential overall impact um, if there was mass adoption, maybe Mm -hmm. uh, policy-enabled? of urban agriculture at a national level. And you've looked at um, uh, Britain as an example there. So let's just go through those questions quickly. So first of all, then, what what is the urban, uh, is urban agriculture more or less productive than conventional agriculture?
1: Yeah, so I I think that that was a question we really wanted to explore because, again, we felt this was something that was, um, there was a lot of opinions out there on um, whether it was or not and this is quite it feels like this is what brought me into this a little bit, this question, because um, it is a little bit outside of my expertise in, in soil sustainability. I've been drawn out of that into this question because there is this polarisation about either it's brilliant and it's completely, you know, how we should be feeding ourselves in the future is that we should all be growing our own food or it's a complete waste of time because you know urban growers they they don't know how to grow and they're not going to be able to professionally they're not going to be able to provide I um, mean not we're not going to be able to feed ourselves in this way and and we shouldn't be talking about it and this just seems to be this this polarization and also between sort of high tech vertical farming techno solution of of how we grow food and sort of back to the land good life um the kind of images and yeah. So this that kind of drew me into this question and this question about, well, how do we best use our soil and land resource in order to sustainably feed ourselves? And I felt that like urban areas were that overlooked area for, for thinking about that. Um, and so we wanted to kind of bring a similar approach of of synthesising what's out there. What do we know and what can we say from what we know? And that I didn't have an opinion either way, really, of whether this was going to be a good solution or not. I just was kind of curious to find out what what data was there to try and a, a inform good that. position
0: to be in for a yeah. scientific study. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs>
1: definitely, but not always the position yes. people are in. I think, if we're honest. Yeah, so we so this was uh, one of my postdocs' work in um, the Urban Revolution Project and uh, Florian he brought together a similar kind of study. He brought together yield data for urban farming, places where there was urban farming. He brought together urban data across the world, uh, a couple of thousand data points um, with better coverage, probably globally, of, of data on yields um, from uh, urban food growing than, than on soils. And, um, and compared that to conventional yields across the world, from a big big global database. And, and what we found was that for lots of different types of crops um, and all the crops we, we looked at, the urban yields were on par or greater than conventional yields. And so, you know, when, when we were having the, these conversations people say, well, you can't get the same sort of yield out of urban farming as compared to uh, sort of professional uh, or field-based farming, then the data there suggests that you can, that, that it is possible. It is variable, of course, but it is possible to get similar yields and more. And, some, and those greater yields might be because, you know, we can manage those systems much more closely on a human scale where um, we can have multiple crop cycles more easily within a, spo- a small space where there's lots of people available to attend. Um, a space compared to a big field setting.
0: So the the concentration of labour is, is very important here. Yeah,
1: right. concentration of of, of labour. Mm. Yeah, labour and love maybe. Right. And yes. and perhaps interest in in growing multiple um, crops within one area. That, I, I that's something I am really thought about and just occurred to me. Maybe is is about market as well. You know that if you are a professional farmer, that you you. Sell into a market, and um, you know it's been grown often for a different purpose at at an urban scale, and so that you you might be able to get more, you know, multiple crops growing at once, and um, because you're not growing to a specific contract. Yes, maybe
0: interesting. Don't know. Yeah. So, so then on the second question then. What, what did this add up to in terms of the, the potential overall impact at national level?
1: Yeah, so we wanted to to look at this um, at a national scale and think about, well, if we had policies that encouraged urban food growing, how much would that matter for our fresh fruit and veg supply? So we focused on um, fresh fruit and veg as these are crops that are high value, um, in terms of market value but high um and they cost a lot when we, we go and buy them in the in the shops, but they're really high value in terms of our diets as well um in the UK we're pretty poor at eating fruit and veg and um we we need to eat more for for our health and also we uh, in the UK we are high importers of fruit and veg as well so we are reliant on, uh, imports kind of around 70% of our fruit and half of our veg is imported and we often import from um, water-scarce countries countries that in future under climate change um, may be facing um, challenges in terms of uh, horticulture in future so we're quite vulnerable in terms of this really important supply of, of food for our health and so we wanted to to look at well, if we if we use these urban spaces, we're not uh, encroaching on further land, we're not um, expanding agriculture and the and the uh, impacts associated with that. would would that help with national food provision? So we did a very uh, basic study where we took all the green space, urban green space in the UK. Um, In all its various forms from playing fields, cemeteries, schoolyards, uh, roadside verges, parks, people's gardens and sort of of amalgamated all that space. And if we used it for food growing and we were able to achieve yields that you can achieve in conventional agriculture in the UK, how much food would that amount Mm to? And if we used all the space, absolutely everything... Mm -hmm. um, the, the upper limit then would be that we could produce food eight times more fruit and veg than we currently domestically produce in the UK. And even though you know, this space is a small amount of our land area in the UK, and it, I, I guess that goes to show that we don't actually devote very much space in the UK to growing fruit and veg professionally anyway, that that space could support so much fresh fruit and veg production. But it, by no means are we suggesting we would use All that space—that would be crazy, and it wouldn't work. (laughs) And we want to do lots of other things with that space as well. Um, And it's you know those those green urban green spaces are really important culturally, really important recreationally. Um, And but if I think it just goes to show, if you use a very small amount of that, it would still add up to a lot, and it would add up to a meaningful amount of our fresh fruit and veg provision. Uh, For the UK.
0: What was a really uh, interesting and important part of this study as well, though, I mean, you were talking about green space there, Jess, but um, you also included quite a bit of grey space, as the phrase goes. Mm. Um, So you were talking about roofs, um, facades, walls. I mean, you were talking also earlier about um, uh, high tech uh, Mm. imaginaries of urban uh, agriculture or urban farms. With you know great big green walls and hydroponics etc cetera, etc, cetera. Yeah. that's also there in the mix in, in that figure, is it?
1: So no, it isn't. Right. So in in Florian's work around yields, that mm. those types of growing are in the mix, mm. and that we see for certain crops like cucumbers, um, and and things um, like that, that they that yields can be much higher in the hydroponic um, or controlled environment growing um so so those yields are in the mix for um when we're comparing urban yields with conventional yields, but we still found in in ground growing mm. could be as productive as conventional agriculture um but for the the national scale study we just do we just took the green space right and so if we add on the roof space facades then that would add more onto that figure right um just very you know we 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 had set out to want to crunch that number but we got a bit uh, swamped with with crunching the green space number and and trying to work out all the roof space and the facade space for the UK in a way that we felt was robust we, we didn't quite get there but uh, yeah, it's quite
0: yeah. a, an image isn't it imagining going into a a, a british city or town in the future and and finding it covered in cucumbers (laughs) yeah
1: it would be great yeah yeah. and i should say that this is um kind of part of a wider suite of work as well uh just that just reminds me that you know that that we're working with um in this work with psychologists with people interested in nutritional health and supply chains and yeah we had this idea in the project of you know of, yeah, what would it mean to, to walk into a city where there were cucumbers growing on the walls all around you? You know, so we had this question in mind of does surrounding ourselves with food growing, how, how might that change our values, our um, eating behaviours as well? Do we uh, feel more nature connected? Uh, would we make better food choices if we were surra- more connected with food growing, that it was more visible to us. Um, that's something we, we try to explore as well um, with, within the project. Fascinating. I mean,
0: yeah, yeah that's wonderful. I, I, I want to come back to that, if I can, in, in a minute. But what you've done very nicely is, is segue into, you know, the sort of the next topic, which is to go from these substantive fund findings into some of the discussion about science, more generally, sciences. Um, and... Uh, Specifically, what you just uh, flagged up there is the evident importance in your research of an interdisciplinary approach. So can we step back a bit from that a little bit and say, why is this a priority for you? What, what's missing in your research? or When did you or how did you decide that this was something that, that really needs to be foregrounded?
1: I think interdisciplinarity, There's there's two sort of motivators for this for me. One is that the the problem needs it; and necessitates it. When we're dealing with complex processes in the soil, then we have soil biology, soil physics, soil chemistry. Uh, they're all interacting, so it takes that bridging between expertise there. But then there's also how we manage the soil as humans. So there's a there's a social science to this. There's and then you know you just get fascinated with the, sort of the cultural value we have for soil. Um, how this integrates within policy and poli- and political systems and financial systems and that that line of thought automatically starts to take you down this this road of of wanting and needing to work with others to try and understand how these systems may play out and how we can what what can we do to try and uh, sustain these yes. systems and and to to make them. Um, not only sustained but healthy systems that support environmental health and support our health and yeah so it takes that interplay of of different um knowledge and different methods but different um practitioners as well and different capacities that people working outside academia have to try and uh, navigate that so it's the it's the nature of the problem yes. that leads to Interdisciplinarity, mm-hmm. and it's just—it's the best thing about my job, isn't it? Right. You know, to be able to to speak to people that are completely knowledgeable and and um, passionate about an area you you don't know much about, yes. and to to be able to connect to that and mm. and and just work with those people, and it's just yeah, it's just brilliant.
0: It's lovely to hear your enthusiasm about that because I can imagine that. Um, there may be many scientists in the world, or at least there is the sort of image of the scientist who is the disciplinary specialist and maybe uh, also secure in that specialism and therefore insecure in stepping beyond it. Um, And so we all know about the silo mentality of of academia, Um, the, the great uh, way in which we're, we're pulled into that, right, for for career advancement, uh, for the publication of papers. You you want to get known and cited uh, by colleagues, and the easiest way to do that is to focus on a specific discipline. Um, and then, you know, the last thing is that when you've made it and you've got, you know, professor in front of your name, you don't want to stand up and say, I don't know anything about this. Yeah. Um, but but it's exciting. the truth. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, you're talking very... Enthusiastically about the best is that actually the best thing about your job. I I I hope you know people are hearing this uh, this gospel, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and maybe like a, I'm just that I stepped out of my sort of uh, deep disciplinary expertise. Yes. You know, well you've done as, that many as times. As they were deepening right? in many yes. times, and I've yeah. never perhaps got deep enough into anything. And yes. but this I've found, always found it a very um it's a nice position to be in to not to be able to ask a stupid question and to, um, yeah, that you kind of have understanding that crosses the piece rather than that goes completely deep into into areas. And I, I find that a very that a very rewarding place to be. But it's also I can see is also an uncomfortable place to be. Um, and it can be difficult for some of those things that you mentioned, you know, around. Um, as you say, building up your peers and network, and these people that are gonna say, "Yes, you're the expert in this, and you, you know, you can be a professor yes. now." I, I don't have a community. I feel like I don't have a community like that. I feel quite unmoved, and that I'm always meeting new people all the time in different communities. And you know, as soon as you meet someone, sometimes you, you, some people they have this, this gauge of like. They ask you, do you know so-and-so? Do you know this person? Do you know that? As some sort of gauge on mm. on where you stand in the community. And I'm always having to say, no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I feel like, well, you know, but I do know an awful lot of people in, in worlds that you've never walked into. Yes. So, but, uh, you know, it's kind of, it, it puts you in a sort of odd position. But I think... I don't think it's hurt me. I think I've no, not at all. No, certainly not,
0: and certainly not the work you've done. Yeah. Let me let me say that from the outside. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Okay, so let, let's let's turn to this this other aspect, right? The, the, this key element, which is the clear emphasis in your work, which is also on communicating your findings uh, to to the public, to lay readers, but but also to experts. To both. And this is obviously, I think, a very powerful combination and a model for science for the Anthropocene. For instance, in much of your work, you have the academic paper and then you have a translation of it, um, maybe even written by a journalist, um, to, to make it accessible. And I think this has at least two purposes, which are, as I've already mentioned, this idea of filling key knowledge gaps that may be blocking action but also removing common and problematic misunderstandings or, or myth busting as we're talking about it. So t- tell me about myth busting. What what why is myth busting important? When did it when did it crop up for you as something that needs to be tackled and uh, how uh, how and why have you prioritized it?
1: It's just an observation really, you know, yeah. when you asked me to think about what what could we talk about yes. here today and, and you know the the concept of science for the anthropocene. It's something. It's something that's been on my mind really uh, that I've noticed about some of the work I've been doing. Um, is that it is addressing uh, a sort of received wisdom about something, and it, that those studies have have been a way of of myself and and the people I work with making sense of that received wisdom and thinking, well, how how could we, how do we really look at this with the the tools that we have in in being able to bring data together or models or um, in the in the different types of, of work that we do so it's it's it was more just an observation that my work seemed to be mm. that's what I seem to be doing right, I yes. don't necessarily know why I'm doing it but that yes. that's what and I think the whole topic of soil in a way that what's drawn me there is an element of of it not being understood and well appreciated. And that you know that I, I want to share that with people and to mm. and to bring a different view of soil, a more perhaps productive view. Um, of so the soil. first
0: myth might be that you want to bust is that soil is boring. Soil is dirt. Right. Soil is boring. Yeah. yeah,
1: that's that's probably the first one. Yeah, mm. Interesting. yeah, and um, and to try and you know, and and where the urban work has gone has been trying to shed light on debates that. That have become polarized. Yes, and and trying to there's a lot of, and in soils soil management itself there's a lot of dogma about what we should be doing, and um, I feel like that I have some of the tools that can help us think about well if we do this then this will happen, and to try and be a bit more, you know that I'm not trying to sell a solution, I'm not trying to sell a chemical, I'm not trying to sell a uh, a way of life or a practice that I'm I'm trying to help us reason through in some way what the consequences of different approaches to soil managed soil and land management might be.
0: Mm. Um, sure. um, so, w- w- what I hear there is that there is this in, this initial myth, right, which is just sort of disinterest e- even yeah. in the problems that you see are so important, which are so important, but. Then there's there's another aspect to this, right? Which is what I'm hearing is that, in fact, we're a, we're very sort of confident as a as a species, as a civilization, now in in how much we know, right? Mm. But in fact, on many really important things, especially many of the complex problems that we're facing, our knowledge base is extremely thin, and the result of that is that it becomes extremely easy for that thin knowledge base to be latched upon uh, by opinion. You talked about lots of opinions earlier. I I thought that was a a great line. And then if that goes also then through a a media landscape, uh, a, a public sphere which encourages fear and sensationalism in order to get the attention, the result is that... Thin claims get inflated into polarised positions uh, mm. because the, the, the last thing one could admit is that you don't know, right? Mm. You, you, you have, an, you have a, an opinion and a position. And so, you know, a key aspect for me from all of this about science for the Anthropocene is just the, it's sort of returning to Science 101, right? It's going back to basics in a sense and saying, let's admit that there are still huge areas of ignorance, that uh, that uh, are that underpin important decisions that we have to make here, and if we can start from admitting our ignorance, well, then we can begin to make sensible decisions. But if we assume we know everything, well, then we're going to come to the wrong decisions, and we see this time and again. For instance, you know about climate change and and uh, claims about that. So we had Chris Demeyer on the podcast uh, um, a few podcasts ago, and he mm-hmm. was talking about the psychology of. Um, of fear messaging. Mm. Um, and the, the 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 rationale of that is that I really care about this issue and yet I'm seeing this inertia. So I'm going to scare the public into action. Mm. But the problem is that that might work for certain kinds of issues. So smoking, it works because it's a very straightforward issue. If you smoke, this will happen. If you don't smoke. This won't happen. So, the, the solution is easy. The, the causation is straightforward. Mm-hmm. In the case of climate change, though, it's so complex that the result is that fear forces a polarization rather than a, 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 a collective movement in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And so, we, we have, the, in fact, the dangers that the opposite is the case that, um, that fear uh, forces people into um, cynicism or to defeat, uh, or conversely into overreaction, to grabbing mm-hmm. onto the wrong solutions. Mm. Um, or worse still, that a story is told by science, it is exposed as being over uh, overstated, and that sows terrible distrust in science uh, generally. So w- let me ask, th- th- this is leading to a question. <laughs> right? the, the question is, uh, what what are the dangers do you think in foregrounding public communication of science? Yeah. Have you encountered any? I mean
1: completely there are dangers and I you know, I completely agree in Hugh where you're coming from, Hugh, and um we wanted to address that hundred harvest left for that reason, that we felt it was sensationalist, that it was alarmist and that we couldn't find the scientific grounding for it which worried us and that you know that that we want people to have trust or you know a, a, a confidence in in the way we're trying to approach things as as scientific communities we're not infallible um but you know we try to put processes in place that that means that what we the conclusions we come to that they they have some grounding um, that they're robust and replicable and that, you know, Do, we try. Making the contribution yeah.
0: science should be making, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, making,
1: yeah. And and so, you know, that that's what we wanted to address with that. And yes, I, I think communicating, um, so having, doing work and then speaking to others about it is very important to me. And I imagine it's important to quite a lot of people, really, that we don't want to do work that sits on a shelf and that doesn't get read. And it's important to do that work and, and to publish it in in the, the forms that we publish it, where there's been a good peer review process and, and that's gone through to improve the work and and to communicate it more fully to others that might be able to build upon it and replicate it or contest it. But also then I feel it's important that where there is relevance for others that we try to um, talk about that relevance with others, um, and that leads on to other other questions and other lines of inquiry that we can explore explore in future as well. So that it is two way. And yeah, I think there is a there is a of course there is a danger to you know when when we talk with people, how you know that we don't have control anymore on the type of conclusions that people might draw, and uh, that they may be. It's headlines that are sensationalist. or um, I think the way I, I try and deal with that is that, you know, we, we try, try to bring moderation to, to what we're saying and that a lot of my work is about trying to find a positive way forward. So often the messages are about a positive way forward yes. rather than about, oh, look at the problem, it's terrible there's a there is a lot of science and science needed to understand the state of the the problem and you said at the beginning we didn't want to talk about the state of soils mm-hmm. and uh, to start with yeah. um because you know if we start on that line there are you know it's it's a whole suite of depression statistics we could wheel out about the state of our our earth and our land and our, our terrestrial ecosystems and and you know unfortunately that they're very valid mm. um but as an engineer, I'm not necessarily interested in in that science that only characterises the ill state of something. I'm looking to for ways in which we can work with the system in order to to bring it to a a state that's uh, better for for multiple outcomes, humans and and non humans, and you know how how do we Move forward in a positive way. So I think when we're communicating yes. about that, there's less risk that that story will be turned into something that's yeah a- absolutely. Alarmist.
0: And and I mean, so I, I, mean, I had another question, which was about tackling the complexity of uh, some of these issues. You know, so again, in you know the work about soil, you you, you highlight even in the, um, the 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 journalistic piece, right, that there is no one answer to um, how long is the soil going to last? The, the planet is big, soils are diverse. there are different practices on different places, and in fact, the lifetime of soils that you found in your study expands five orders of magnitude yeah right so <laughs> um, and then you know the challenges of getting a message like that out um, the complexity of that out um, through the existing media channels where in a sense all the uh, movement there is in the opposite direction. It's for simplicity. It's for uh, how does this affect me here and now? Um, the, the, sh- the, the shortest possible attention span, etc., uh, mm-hmm. etc. Et so, but I think we sort of touched on that a little bit. The clock is ticking uh, on this. So let's move on a little bit in, in terms of maybe we can bring this back, perhaps to some of the substance of, of the issues. Right. Mm-hmm. So you've been we've been talking about the. The way in which engaging with the public, getting messages out of the public, communicating is so important. Um, but part of the great promise that I see in your approach generally is that it's, it's there is, I think, a trust that, that people are intelligent beings mm-hmm. and notwithstanding all these media ecologies that I've just mentioned, that there, there is a hunger in fact, and an appetite, and certainly a a capacity to to process and and to to learn, and that involves potentially also changing common senses. So it may not be immediately obvious, but we have to continue to communicate uh, in in, in sober, uh, measured ways, and slowly and surely, pennies will start to drop in terms of shifting common senses. And I think perhaps we're beginning to see this a little bit. So if I can maybe just touch on two particular issues which came up for me very clearly in in your work. One was about this so-called sharing versus sparing debate, uh, which is the the debate that um, Dave Goulson uh, mentioned in in the last episode as well about insects and bees, which is how do we arrange agriculture on the surface of the planet? optimally, uh, given the ecological challenges? Do we uh, spare land? In other words, we concentrate agriculture as much as possible, uh, and then we uh, we sort of take land, some of the land that you were talking about, which isn't appropriate for agriculture, and we give it back to forests and grasslands, um, maybe even rewild it. Um, Or do we share the land and mix things up a bit more, so we have a much more biodiverse... um, perhaps lower yield, but much more long-lasting forms of uh, agriculture. And where that doesn't necessarily have to be organic or anything like that, it could be urban agriculture. I think that certainly fits within this um, uh, sharing model. So your work on soils, on conservation methods, on urban agriculture, hydroponics, etc., clearly has a great deal to say on this debate what do you think it's pointed to what what's it illuminated around this sharing versus sparing yeah
1: you're right this that that sharing versus sparing debate is something that has interested me and and motivated some of the work and i think what you know what we can say with certainty is the way we're doing things now isn't sustainable that a lot of our conventional practices are not sustainable so intensifying those how sustainable is that going to be mm. it would be a big question mark in my mind and i think generally we need to sort of move away from this um mono land use mindset i think it's 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 one way as humans we've approached the earth and it doesn't fit in with earth processes and ecosystems and nature and we need to think much more you know, generally we need to work with landscape. We need to work with ecosystems and nature to put the right thing in the right place, or or to put things in place that that work in place, at least. And so that, uh, yeah, and that. So I, and probably that probably puts me a little bit more on the on the sharing side of the debate, perhaps. Um, but I think generally, though, if we need—it's more than that. We need to totally reorientate our thinking on this. Yes, that it, we need to reorientate what we're growing. What, why are we growing all this—the the food that we grow—and we're mm. fueling ill, ill health basically. Mm. That what we grow in isn't fit for purpose for a, a flourishing, uh, for human population mm. that's healthy and that equitably eats well, that ex- experiences food in a positive way. That we're just the complete mix of what we're growing Mm. um, is wrong. Yeah, so
0: there's a way in which the sharing versus sparing debate can be set up in a way which presumes too much is going to stay in place, basically.
1: And it presumes that we want to achieve the same goal. Yes, that that what the goal is is yield, and the goal isn't yield for me. Mm. And that's something that's become much clearer as I've you know worked with with others as well and. that the, it isn't about a quantity of calories yes. provided or a breakdown of nutrients. It's about providing people with food that nourishes them, that supports their health, that supports their culture, that supports the community. And so, how do we do that? That's that's a much more interesting question to me yes. than this question of sharing and sparing. It's not just about volume mm-hmm. that's analysed over a, a global sort of boundary.
0: Yes.
1: And th- this is where, to me, things like urban agriculture are really interesting, even if they're not providing you know, the the amount of calories we need. Mm-hmm. You know, in in that yield mindset that that gets talked about um they might be providing us with a lot in terms of our right. um our lives you know
0: so in, in a sense they hack the presumption that yield is the question for agriculture as yeah, well yeah, they, they open up that so. question yeah i mean what there was there was a a sentence in, uh, i read um in preparing for this and there was also um a new york times report about a new world bank report uh, just last week And it it was summed up in a a census like this, which was, if we can increase crop yields, we have the opportunity to reduce the amount of arable land we need to meet this demand. But that feels to me to be precisely the wrong way around, right? Mm. That if uh, that is again saying, uh, well... Yield is, well, yield becomes, it becomes a circular argument, right? Yield is, as you say, it's the conclusion, it's the goal, but it's also the premise of that. And, and so we become locked in that particular logic mm-hmm. um, and the goal, uh, the, the promise, the empty promise, it turns out, because we've been doing this for decades, is let's increase yield, then we can reduce land. No, what will happen is we will increase yield and we will increase land. Uh, yeah. the, the rebound effect will be uh, unstoppable. And in the meantime, we will be locking ourselves further into the practices and the 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 whole way of thinking about the agricultural and food system, mm-hmm. um, which is preventing us from looking at things anew. But I yeah. mean, this points to my my other question, really, which is about uh, which you've nicely already come to, which is that uh, the work you've been doing, urban agriculture, is opening up really profoundly settled. Re- understandings of the relationship between rural and urban mm-hmm. um, and Marx for instance talks about the the, the metabolic rift uh, mm-hmm. at, the, as, at the beginning of modernity the agricultural revolution of the 18th century um, and this being uh, the, the standard understanding now uh, of the the division of uh, of labor of uh, regulation of policy of society. Um, and in fact, the result of that is that we have a rural area and Britain amongst the worst, which is just one huge factory. it's mm. It's not a lot of the rural areas of Britain are not countryside, in fact. Mm. You know, they are they are food factories. Mm. Um, and so this is going right back to undermining, reforming, transforming, the whole model mm. of, of the food system, as you were talking about, yeah. and, and perhaps urban agriculture is is a lever that's
1: there. yeah exactly as a as a as a lever as a place where by incorporating more food growing, we might do more good than harm that mm-hmm. we could improve ecosystems rather than degrade them with with agriculture mm. within those contexts, and that is somewhere that is close to our everyday lives that could that that can matter to us in a way that you know that, that we created all these rifts. Yes. That we've begins
0: to suture them back together. Yeah. Yes. So it
1: helps helps to do that. Mm. Even if it doesn't fully yeah. do it, if we you know perhaps we cannot sustain the kind of the population we have mm-hmm. on the on the type of of, you know, personal food growing we might have done mm-hmm. in the past. I think, yeah, you just have to realise that how we haven't been doing this very long, actually. Yes. This in te- this um, landscape where it's lots of it is for one purpose only, whether it's for living or for growing or for woodlands or, you know, that 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 is a very new arrangement of the earth mm-hmm. that we've created, and it's not a very useful. I, I'm not sure it's a very useful arrangement, and if we try to blur those divides again. That what kind of life could we live then? Was, is what interests me. Yeah.
0: Okay, that's great because th- this takes us you know, to sort of the final question before we'll end, which is that you've done a lot of thinking about this, a lot of discussing with colleagues, a lot of you know diverse set of contacts you were talking about. Right? What's emerging for you in terms of um, the food, the future of food production? What might that actually look like? What might it be like? To, to live in that, and and equally as an appendix to that question, because uh, we're interested in science on this podcast, what role does science play? Not just in getting there, but when we're there, what role is science doing in that future?
1: I think for me, it's about diversification of mm-hmm. the food system. That we need to be able to create systems where we can grow things in different ways, um, and that we diversify our crops, we diversify our practices where things are grown, how food is accessed in order to provide resilience in an uncertain future, um, but also to provide all the things that we, that we don't optimize for when we just optimize for one um, one thing uh, such as yield. Mm-hmm. And so for me it is a, it is a diversified uh, food production and perhaps urban agriculture is a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what role does science play then? It, that we have a difficult role to play because if we w- we're working within a diversified system, there are a lot of different contexts, a lot of different practices that, that we could, I would love if we could work alongside and to try and help um, understand what the consequences of these different practices are yeah. in place and to, to help reason through those and, and choose things that are going to come to better outcomes for people, mm-hmm. with people. Um, and that I I don't see that that work being done mm-hmm. finished ever. Yes, that 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 would be something that we would continually want to be play a role in and a part with.
0: So it's about a, a key aspect of that which I'm I'm hearing you talk about is that it it's seeing this diversity of things that mm-hmm. we need to optimize that their place specificity and and being constantly alive to. Uh, to learning things that we didn't know mattered, that they matter. Uh, to, to keeping an eye uh, on on uh, these different measurements. Yeah. There's there's going to be a need for technical expertise and intervention in measuring lots of these things. They're not just going to happen mm-hmm. uh, and be obvious to to the human body. Yeah, um, and it's complex. The yes.
1: system's complex. So we you know I I don't think we'll ever be done yes. with understanding the the complex consequences. Of an action, yes, and helping navigate that. I don't. I don't think we're going to be done with that. Yeah,
0: fantastic. Okay, Jess, thank you so much. And and you may also know we end with a question as well. So, um, if we are going over the cliff regarding soil and food systems, and we urgently need a new science for the Anthropocene, will we learn to fly?
1: I hope we will. <laughs> I don't know whether to say more than that. (laughs) Okay, that's that's fair enough. That's where we are. Yes, that's where we are. I hope we will.
0: Okay, brilliant. Well, you're certainly doing everything that you can uh, to help us. So thank you. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you.
1: Yeah, lovely to speak to you as well.
0: Great. Uh, Jess, thanks very much. And thank you also for listening. Uh, If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell just one friend about it and join us again next time. Thanks very much.